Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we have one of the co-hosts of Pod Save America, Tommy Vitor. He, you may also know that he was President Obama's national security spokesman. So we're talking to him about what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Iran, and an overview of foreign policy. But then we get into the hard stuff about the Democratic presidential primary. Tommy shares his views on that. And remember that he's in town because the there's going to be a Pod Save America show in San Jose on Thursday. We talk a little bit about that. Tommy Vitor next on It's All Political. Tommy Vitor, welcome to It's All Political and welcome to the phone cords to your former city of San Francisco. <laughs> Thank you. It's so great to be back. I, I miss San Francisco. I really do. Yeah. What do, what do you miss about it? What do you miss about San Francisco now that you're ensconced in L.A.? I mean, a couple. Mainly, I miss my friends. I had a really, really great group of friends uh, that I met there. A lot of them were, you know, recent, uh, recently new to the city. So it was great just hanging out and getting to know the place together. I miss, you know, driving up to Sonoma on the weekend and coming back the same day and being easy. And it's one of the prettiest cities in the world. So what's not to miss, Joe? Exactly. All right. Let's talk about the more serious and pressing issues like the Ukraine. Sure. Um, so uh, for those who don't know, you spent four years as uh, President Obama's national security spokesman. You've been in the Situation Room. You know you know what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about what we should be concerned about here. President Trump has uh, reportedly eight times uh, asked the Ukrainian president to launch an investigation into Joe Biden's son, Hunter his business ties to the Ukraine. Uh, this is happening at the same time that Trump has control over $250 million in aid to the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And and what has some people freaking out is that he's with could be potentially withhold, withholding this money in an attempt to convince Ukraine to investigate Biden, potentially his chief rival. Yeah. Now, this, Tommy, spell this out. This is not illegal, correct? But it is certainly unethical. Why should we care about this? I'm not sure that it's not illegal. I mean, it's he's kind of holding them ransom. So look, let's let's do the step back context, which is just to remind everybody that in 2014, the Russians invaded parts of Ukraine, both the Crimean Peninsula and then parts of eastern Ukraine. And that territory is still occupied by Russian proxy forces or the Russian government today. And there's fighting happening every day. So the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian people look to the West and to the United States for support. And they also know damn well how weird Trump's uh, relationship with Vladimir Putin is. So they are hearing they're getting these weird messages out of Washington, sometimes from Trump himself, who was uh, reportedly canceled, personally decided to cancel a meeting with the new president of Ukraine, uh, President Zelensky. They're hearing from Rudy Giuliani, who's just banging around in our foreign policy, saying that he wants an investigation uh, into the Biden family. And then they're hearing uh, that $250 million in military aid from the United States to Ukraine has been frozen. So they, of course, think that those things are connected. And for them, this is deadly serious. I mean, this is aid that they would use on the battlefield tomorrow. And so, but again... Why should we be concerned about this as voters looking at it? You should be concerned about the president of the United States using taxpayer 
dollars to hold hostage another country until they dig up dirt on his political opponents. You should be concerned about a president who is so indifferent to uh, the fact that he's providing military aid to a country that might use it to kill people in another country that he would just mess around like this and make it about himself. I mean, that, that, that suggests an attitude towards foreign policy, towards national security, towards people in Ukraine, towards our relationship with Russia, that is just so wildly irresponsible that I can't think of any precedent in history. Does this move the ball in impeachment in any ways? We're hearing Schiff talk about it. He goes, wow, now this is this is moving me on this. Where do you see this moving the impeachment the discussion for Democrats? I do think that the ball has moved on impeachment. I mean, Schiff said over the weekend that this very well may have crossed the Rubicon uh, in terms of impeachment. Pelosi has been just absolutely doggedly against impeachment to date. Uh, It did seem like she sent a message to her caucus over the weekend that they'll investigate this latest iteration uh, of Trump's, you know, corruption and and see if that might move us towards impeachment. I think the key point here, though, is that Trump made this call to the president of Ukraine where he, you know, held him hostage uh, until he dug up dirt on the Biden family the day after Robert Mueller testified before Congress. He cares so little about uh, accountability. He thinks he is so invincible that he was willing to do this the day after Mueller testified about his obstruction of justice charges and all the nefarious things his campaign uh, did in terms of trying to work with Russia to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. So I think it's really important. And the the people that I'm going to be watching here about how they move are some of the folks who the the, the freshman Congress uh, members of Congress who won very narrow districts in California. We're talking uh, Katie Hill down your way now in, in suburban Los Angeles, Josh Harder and T.J. Cox in the Central Valley. These are the people who have not come out in, against uh, impeachment. Um, this how does impeachment do? do why do what do voters care about this and how? Why are these uh, Democrats hesitant to move on it? You know, it's a good question. I mean, look, to date, the impeachment conversation has been largely a discussion about, uh, you know, the, the things that were investigated by the special counsel, Robert Mueller. Right. This is a whole new set of issues. This is the president of the United States using taxpayer dollars to extort a foreign country to dig up dirt on his rival. So. In some ways, we just need to reset the conversation. Now, you're right that there are some moderate uh, freshman uh, congressmen that have not come out in favor of impeachment or sort of waiting and seeing. I think they're look. None of us know how the politics are gonna are gonna go on this. There's a there's a chance that voters hear about uh, the Democratic Party impeaching the president and they don't like it and it hurts us politically. I just think that when you have a president of the United States that has just acted with complete impunity, who continues to uh, just brazenly, uh, you know, use the office for personal gain. We have to draw a line in the sand. We have to push back at some point, or it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And I, this isn't about Joe Biden, right? Like I'm not talking to you as a Biden supporter. This is going to happen to whichever person gets the nomination on the Democratic side. Trump knows that he and Rudy Giuliani can go on TV and they can make any wild allegation and that Fox News will cover it ad nauseum until 40% of the country believes that it's true. And so we need to we need to check him and it needs to happen as soon as possible. And we should uh, say that there's been no evidence that Biden has done anything illegal on behalf of his son uh, in this case. It, more, moreover, 
it's not just that there's no evidence that Biden did anything wrong. What Joe Biden was doing was pushing for a prosecutor in Ukraine to be fired because that individual was broadly seen as corrupt. The, the, the U.S., most of the European countries, the IMF, the World Bank, it was a consensus position among all those parties that this top prosecutor in Ukraine should go because he was seen as corrupt. And, and so if Joe Biden's going over to Ukraine to deliver that message, he's not freelancing. That is a, a decision that's made during a full meeting of the president's national security staff, the, the secretary of defense, the secretary of state, the intelligence community, everybody is vetting these decisions and they're coming to them together. And then Biden is the messenger because he's someone who can you know, deliver a message on behalf of the White House. And so like these allegations are, are so absurd on their face. Now, like, I have no idea what Hunter Biden did or didn't do in his business career. That's a sub story to me the, in terms of like, I do feel like we're back in, uh, you know, down some rabbit hole in the 2016 campaign where the fact of Russia interfering to steal Hillary Clinton's emails and defeat her in a campaign was not treated as a bigger story than the fact that she used a private private server. Somehow those were treated as equivalent. In this case, it's like Joe Biden did nothing wrong. In fact, he was trying to push for uh, more accountability and transparency and root out corruption. And and the Trump camp, the Trump, the White House, he's using his office to attack his opponent. I mean, it's like I hope there's no false equivalence uh, in the way we talk about this in the future. Exactly. Well, how should Democrats, what should they learn from that 2016 experience where it became look at the emails uh, uh, versus versus something else? What mm-hmm. what should they learn and how to handle this politically and how to. How to explain this is a complex story. How do they explain this in a short, succinct way so they don't fall back into that rabbit hole as they did in 2016? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to explain that Trump is is using your money to, and the power of his office uh, for personal gain and, and to uh, fabricate dirt on a rival, and that's why they need to move to impeachment. Because what I think, what I think Trump understands is that. If you're worried about being accused of collusion, if you're worried about being accused of corruption, he's going to accuse his opponent of the same thing first. So it turns into an I'm rubber, you're glue situation and it's just a muddy wash. <laughs> right. So, yes, he, he's the always. Ele- yeah. I mean, a political staple. Yes, exactly. So he's always on offense. He's always attacking. And, and Democrats get on the defensive because we feel like. An attack like this one is just so absurd on its face. It's so, uh, you know, non-factual on its face that the media will do our job for us and and make sure the American people have an understanding of what's true. That's just not how it's going to play out. We need to fight back. We need to use the impeachment process to start prosecuting a case on Trump in a very public way so that people understand this. Because I guarantee you that the vast majority of the American people have no idea what you and I are talking about right now. They have not heard this story. They have not internalized this story. It will probably kind of get washed into like, oh, this is part of the Russia thing to them. We need to make a case and it needs to play out over weeks and weeks. On Tuesday, uh, President Trump's going to address the U.N., uh, obviously, Iran is, is front and center mm-hmm. there. How how close do you think we are to some sort of armed conflict there? Um, what's the way out, and what what's the role of Democrats in this? Where where can they, you know, make their voice heard on this issue and 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 do something to avert it? I think that Democrats need to clearly explain to the American people that going to war with Iran to protect Saudi oil infrastructure is insane. 
if we haven't learned a lesson in the past two decades that our military involvement in conflicts in the Middle East leads more often than not to really, really bad outcomes, I don't know what lesson there is left to learn, right? It's like, it is it is madness. And so what is clearly happening here is Iran was promised sanctions relief as part of the Iran deal. They complied with their end of the, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, and then Trump pulled out of it. And so they're still getting hammered by sanctions. And so they have engaged in this completely predictable escalatory tit for tat behavior. It's like, oh, you guys, uh, you guys board and hold one of our oil tankers. Fine. We'll, we'll launch an attack on one of yours. I'm not defending this Iranian behavior. It's completely unacceptable, but the, I think there's one very easy way to, to roll it all back, which would be to reenter the Iran deal and to get back into negotiations about their program. And like the, the idea that we can just hit a couple targets or, or, you know, blow up some their Navy or some infrastructure. Like, it, it is nuts. It will escalate. That's what always happens. And the, the let's say the Iranian army is strong. It's a, it's a one of the best armies in the world, correct? We're, and we're, we would be underestimating them to think that that, as you say, could wipe them out or, or cripple them significantly. Yeah, the, the Iranians have a, a substantial and sophisticated military. They also have uh, a whole bunch of proxy forces that they can use to attack... Uh, our bases in the region, U.S. troops, the Israelis, for example, you know, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah has thousands and thousands and thousands of rockets and missiles pointed at Israel that they could launch. Like, there's a lot of ways that these guys can lash back. Um, You know, I'm not exactly sure what President Trump wants to do. I, I think he is he is politically savvy enough to know that a war with Iran would not be politically popular in that what this what the Iranians just demonstrated is the Saudi military, despite buying sixty eight billion dollars worth of arms from us last year, is uh, pretty pathetic. Like they clearly they, they should have had missile defense systems up and ready to deal with this attack that just happened. But for some reason, they didn't. So what the Iranians have demonstrated is that they can target this oil infrastructure. And if they did it again, or they did it in a a more spectacular fashion, that could drive up the price of oil, that could lead to a global uh, slowdown economically. And I imagine this is all in the back of Trump's head as he's thinking about his own political future, because that's literally all he cares about, right? So it does seem like he does not want to escalate. He doesn't want war with Iran. He pulled back from launching a military strike after they shot down our drone, he kicked uh, John Bolton out of the White House, who is a a warmonger who has called for war with Iran for decades. So, I mean, I'm just I'm hopeful that we will find some restraint there. But, you know, a lot of this is on the Iranians. Yeah. All right. The, speaking of Trump's future, who do you think has the, of the uh, 2020 candidates? Who do you think has the best chance of defeating President Trump? Uh, I don't know. And I'm out of the prediction business because I was really bad That's, at it in, yes, tw- in yes. 2016. <laughs> Um, so, you know, who knows, but whoever the person is, is going to have to do two things. You know, I think that we all need to be ready, uh, and expect that Donald Trump will be able to turn out his base in record numbers. This will be a huge Mm -hmm. turnout election. So the democratic party needs to inspire, uh, our base. We need to get, you know, thousands, if not millions of young people willing to not just vote, but volunteer and knock doors and make calls and give money. And then on top of that, we're going to have to find a way to get some of these voters who went for Obama in 2012 and Trump in 2016 to change their mind. And they're going to be people in 
uh, suburban communities out in Wisconsin, uh, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania. So we need to turn out our base, turn out people in the cities, uh, get greater African-American turnout, more turnout among young people, but also convince some of those so-called swing voters to come back. And so like that's going to be the alchemy here. In the in the last debate, uh, Julian Castro got some got a lot of heat and blowback uh, for ages sounding attacks on on Biden. But I, you know, I, the way I read this is wasn't this isn't this ultimately good for Biden if he would be the nominee? This is kind of like spring training. Trump, you as as you alluded to, Trump is going to hit him harder on this. This could be a form of inoculation against the these uh, these attacks, these sort of attacks about you know being older and and, mm-hmm. and losing it. And, and this is what people are saying in in private and and in public. Cory Booker said he was concerned about Biden carrying the ball into the end zone. Mm-hmm. What did you What did you make of those things? And, and you know, and, and with the caveat, of course, you you were close to Biden. You uh, he was on the he was the vice president while you were in the uh, in the campaign and in the White House. So what? What do you think of those attacks? I mean, look, the other day, I think Jimmy Carter came out and said he thinks that there should be a cap on the age of the president because he couldn't do the job at 80 that he did when he was president of the United States. And I think that, you know, that's uh, I take him at his word. I think it's a reasonable discussion uh, to talk about whether you have the amount of energy you do at 75 or 80 that you do at 50 or 60, right? Like that's a debate that we can all have. I think what Castro messed up was the tone and the way in which he did it. When, When he said to Biden, did you just forget what you said? Did you just forget what you just said? It sounded condescending. It sounded like he was mocking him and sort of calling him an old man. And I think in the most recent Des Moines Register Iowa poll, you saw Castro's unfavorable ratings shoot up pretty significantly. And I think like the, the point is you can you can have these arguments, but how you do it is going to be just as important as what you say. And if you come come off as kind of mean and you're being mean to a, a vice president that a lot of people have fondness for, I don't think it's going to play well. Like, look, he, he can again, I'm I'm not saying that it's a conversation that's out of bounds. I actually think it's perfectly relevant to talk about the age of these candidates. But, you know, you got to execute these things well. Do you think Biden's lost a step? Uh, Look, I mean, I don't know. I I have not. I left the White House in 2013. So I have not spent a significant amount of time with Joe Biden from then until now. There's a lot of what you see in Joe Biden that, you know, in terms of long speeches, uh, funny turns of phrase going on for a long time, that people have been criticizing Joe Biden for yeah, since 1988, right? <laughs> so, like, a lot of this is the same. Now, that said, like, he he has, you know, he is older. <laughs> He's one of the older candidates. But, look, you know, there's a lot of candidates on that stage who are into their 70s. And I think we shall see if the American people decide that's a problem or if they decide it's a problem for some of them but not all of them. I mean, look, ultimately, like, we have voters are obsessed about electability. All they want is for someone to beat Trump, but absolutely yeah. none of them know what electability means, and and nor do I. So it's going to be a bunch of subjective uh, decisions that that pick this next president. And, and the thing I, I'm sure we we both hear a lot of is that there's too many candidates right now. Mm-hmm. Um, what should the DNC do about that um, uh, for the next debate or and and going forward and and let's let's be real. Who should who should ditch it now? Well, I mean, look, it does seem like there's the chance that uh, there will be 12 candidates who qualify for the next debate, 
which means we'll be back to having two different nights of six each, which just is a bummer. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to watch two <laughs> debates. We all want to watch the, the most important players up there on that stage debating each other. Um, but like, you know, look, Cory Booker came out recently and said that if he's not able to raise a certain amount of money before the next FEC filing period, he probably won't continue. I think uh, there's a chance he'll meet that bar and, and stay in. Uh, but I also think there's probably other candidates out there who pretty soon will say, you know, fundraising is dried up. I just can't continue this thing. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm out of here and moving on. But um, yeah, look, you know, 12 people, that's, that's too many. I think 19 candidates spoke at the Iowa uh, steak fry this past weekend. So that that's yeah. just too many. But what do you say? Should it be the role of the party to put a hand on a shoulder and say, hey, you know, let's, uh, as Coach Noel would say with the Steelers years ago, it's time to move on to your life's work. <laughs> Should that be the role of the um, the party chair or, or is, is, you know, we've had Perez on the on the podcast and he's, you know, and you've had him on. It's, he seems very skittish to to put to be even seen as putting his thumb on the scale here. So who's going to do this? Well, look, and, and rightly so, right, because the DNC was correctly criticized in 2016 for uh, looking like putting they were thumb on the scale. Yeah, thumb in the scale <laughs> for Hillary. Right. And so. Look, they they have the DNC has done more to winnow the field earlier this year than in past years. Mm-hmm. To get to qualify for debates, you needed to get uh, a certain number of donors and get a certain percentage in in the polls uh, over time. And in that, the number of donors you needed increased to get into the later debates. So, like, they have provided a winnowing process because my sense of the candidates who are able to break through in places like Iowa, New Hampshire, is. If you're not on that debate stage, if you're not part of the national conversation, people aren't just going to get they're just not going to give you a shot because there are too many candidates to go to, uh, too many candidate events to go to. There's too much going on. All they want is someone who can win. If you're not perceived as part of that national conversation, you're not really going to get a look. Now, traditionally, that winnowing process has been played by a state like Iowa. So it's not unusual for the field to remain pretty large until the Iowa caucuses. The difference this year is just the the field from the very beginning was just way too big. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard to, the, the bar of entry is so low now. It's hard to, to, to intercept folks at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, look, there, I think there are a lot of people who look uh, at past primaries, especially on the Republican side and say, well, look, there's no downside to running for president. You get your name ID up, you write a book, you do, you know, hit the <laughs> speaker's circuit. Uh, who's the 999 guy? Herman Cain. Like people like that who are just, yes. a, just a joke from day one, but, you know, built a profile for themselves, got on Fox News. Now they have radio shows. They made a lot of money off this thing. So there's a, there's a cynical, gross side of uh, the desire to run for politics uh, above just wanting sort of power for yourself. Now, you guys at, uh, at Crooked Media, your, your parent company, if, it w- if you will, mm-hmm. uh, are, are launching this 10-part podcast series on public health called America Dissected with uh, Dr. Abdul Sayed, El yeah. Sayed, who ran for governor of Michigan. We are. I want to talk. Yeah, yeah. It sounds very interesting. I want to talk about healthcare for a, a, a bit. We did an explainer a couple of weeks ago about, you know, what the difference was in the plan, sort of help people mm-hmm. as they're watching these debates to figure out, you know, in English what everybody's talking about. Because, you know, you've seen the polling. Most people don't know what the difference is or they think it's, you know, Medicare for all is one thing or or public options, another thing. Um, I thought what 
Biden did the other day was kind of canny. He said either you're with Barack or you're with Bernie. Mm-hmm. Is that is that smart or is it dumbing it down a little bit too much? And and how can Democrats explain this issue in a simple way so that yeah. uh, so that so it can be because this is the number one issue for people. Yeah, I I didn't love that line because <laughs> you know th- these are these are big important policy decisions that I think go beyond supporting a popular past president or not. I mean, I think what a lot of these candidates are talking about is either building on the Affordable Care Act, uh, the existing health care framework, and adding a public option that would allow people all around the country to buy into uh, a public health insurance uh, pool and, and, you know, and build it out that way versus a Bernie plan, which is to fully switch to a single-payer program uh, and eliminate private insurance. And so there's some people who are kind of in the middle, right? Like Kamala Harris is sort of this 10-year period in between her plans where they phase out. And it, it's complicated. But those are the basic kind of outlines of, of what is being talked about right now. Um, you know, I don't I don't have a strong view of or I, I don't want to endorse one or the other because it ends up being just like a proxy for endorsing a candidate. But I do think, um, you know, it, it's... It's an important debate. The, the challenge, I think, for these candidates is a lot of these debates have focused on 30, 40 minutes right at the top of like really complicated backs, back and forths about the minutia of these plans. And I think there's a bit of a disconnect there between that discussion, which is important and worthwhile. And I'm glad the networks are having those debates, but with what voters want to hear. Because if you look in the latest Des Moines Register poll, two-thirds of respondents said they're choosing their candidate based on who can beat Trump, and one-third said it was based on issues. So it's clear like people are just obsessed about this electability question, which is frustrating because uh, they don't know what it means. Yes, and in, and in many cases, uh, let's face it, electability is a bullshit thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's however you want to define it, and uh, electability in many cases means uh, a white guy. Right. Um, which in, in, in studies have shown that uh, when uh, that that does not white guys do not have any advantage when uh, non-white guys are on the ticket. Right. So right. but just real um, quick, you, you mentioned yeah. uh, Abdul uh, Abdul Syed's podcast, America yeah. Dissected. So this is a really cool limited series we're doing. Uh, Abdul ran for governor in Michigan, but he's a like a really smart young guy who is a doctor, a public health administrator. And he's going to get into um, some of the craziness around public health debates. So. He's not just going to, you know, talk about Medicare for all versus a public option. He's going to talk about uh, the anti-vaxxer phenomenon, where that comes from. He's going to talk about goop uh, and some of the the sort of wellness craze and some of the snake oil that's being peddled to people uh, and then and and where it comes from and and some of the legacy um, unfairness in our healthcare system. So he's like this young, cool, very funny, smart guy. It's incredibly engaging show. I've heard a couple episodes. So check it out and subscribe if you can. Yeah, that does sound like an interesting concept. Um, speak, uh, speaking of, uh, we were talking about electability a second ago. A mm-hmm. um, couple more things I want to touch base with you on. One sure. was, is Kamala Harris. What happened to her? She's been on your show a couple of times. Um, t- she has not caught fire other than, uh, you know, right after her, uh, you know, uh, when she hit Biden in one of the debates. W- why has that happened? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think she had one of the best debate performances I've ever seen at that first debate. The first uh, one was great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think the um, and the numbers bore out that it, it really impressed people. But then, 
you know, I, I think she's um, the latest Iowa poll. She sort of stayed flat or dropped a little bit. Now, to be honest, I was I was a little surprised that she, that she didn't fare worse in that Iowa poll because she hadn't been in the state for uh, over a month. And so I think her campaign has seems like they've recently made the decision to go all in on Iowa and really focus on the state. Yes. She said, I'm I'm. Effing moving Go to ahead. Iowa. Yes, you can, say, <laughs> right. you can drop that here. I was counting on the the uh, the expl- explicit sticker when you were on. You've dropped uh, okay. no f box. You've disappointed. <laughs> sorry, sorry. But so it sounds like they've made this strategic decision. Um, and look, I I think that Senator Harris it can be one of the most uh, impressive speakers, advocates, debaters uh, in the entire Democratic Party. So. If she spends a bunch of time in Iowa and is talking to a bunch of voters, like she has a huge amount of upside and room to grow. Um, the challenge, I think, has been that a lot of folks that have moved away from other candidates over the last few months have gone to the Warren campaign. And all of these yeah. candidates have to figure out Warren is steadily, methodically climbing uh, in all of these polls. What are they going to do about it? Because everyone has sort of seemed nervous about uh, criticizing her head on. And, and I'm wondering when we're going to get there. Instead, we've seen everybody attacking Biden. Is that a danger that that Warren is getting a free ride right now from her fellow Democrats? Kind of. It is a little bit of a danger. But, you know, like there's a danger in criticizing a fellow Democrat in a primary. Every time it happens, you might uh, hurt the uh, the person you're attacking and, and, you know, lower their polling. But you're unfavorable always go up. It's it just historically happened. So in 2004, the race was Howard Dean was running away with it. And then Dick Gephardt decided to really go after Dean. And they just like it turned into, uh, uh, you know, just a brutal slog and fight between those two. And what ended up happening was John Kerry and John Edwards emerged from the from the field and ended up uh, taking first and second in the state. And so that's the risk of, of going on offense like that and, and being negative, especially in a state like Iowa that does not love uh, negative politics. And you can you can move very quickly. I uh, carry in that race was at four percent in December and he, he wound up winning two months later, which is a, a crazy turn of events. Yeah, um, that, we, uh, that that's the most important point about, you know, these Iowa polls like, you know, at this point in uh, October of 2007, Barack Obama was in third place in Iowa in the latest polls. We didn't have a public poll that showed Obama winning until three days before the caucuses. Um, I remember those early days of Obama in uh, Iowa. Those when you were still returning my calls. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, before I was told told by headquarters that my job was to talk to Iowa reporters and uh, get your stuff together, buddy. But, you know, look, and then also like this time in 2015, Hillary was up by like seven on uh, Bernie, and they ended up essentially tied. So the key thing in that Iowa poll is that most people said they could be persuaded to switch candidates. The whole field, it feels pretty up in the air. History suggests that someone will emerge from the pack that isn't currently leading. Pod Save America will have a live show Thursday, September 26th at the City National Civic Center. in uh, San Jose. That's right. Uh, theater. Uh, the uh, the last time we saw each other was in the bowels of the Fox Theater 
uh, in one of the lamest green rooms of all time. <laughs> uh, it was down there with you and, and the guys. We chatted for a Chronicle story. How has the live show changed since then? Are, are there flash pots, uh, explosions during stage? <laughs> are there like, uh, you know, there people doing, doing the can-can? What, what's going on? <laughs> you know, they're remarkably similar, uh, although maybe that's a bad thing. No, I mean, the thing about the, the live podcasts are they're incredibly fun to do. But um, it's not like uh, your normal touring where you kind of perfect a thing and then you go out and do it over and over again. We It's a new show every night. So we are constantly like we're the we're the nerdiest writer in the history of touring because it's like wi-fi and the wall street journal you know we get in there oh and it like, was it was shameful i was one person drinking a beer before i won't, we won't <laughs> say who it was i think it was you actually probably me uh, yeah it was it was like she's like where's where the where's the coke and hookers come uh, on this is a rock and roll show <laughs> yeah you know look maybe and maybe if trump wins again we'll uh we'll get there <laughs> <laughs> no well i gotta say you have a very you've uh at crooked million you've developed a very diverse uh, stable of contributors there and show hosts. But one thing I do hear, and this is from my female friends who are generally sympathetic to you politically, mm -hmm. is that your show is it's a little too broy sometimes. Do you hear that? And, and what do you do about it? Yeah, look, I mean, it's fair. I, look, the, the we started Positive America as a hobby. You know, it was a, a show we were doing for fun during 2016 on the Ringer Network. It was called Keeping It 1600 then. And it was just like a bunch of friends who talked to each other a couple times a week about politics. After the election, we were all just heartbroken and, and kind of destitute and decided to quit our day jobs and start Crooked Media. And the idea was to start with that one show that we renamed Pod Save America, but then use the network we created and use our ability to sort of tell our audience about new shows to develop new shows. So now we have 10 or 11. I mean, the one we just launched with Abdul Al-Sayed is a great example we, you know, we have a show called Hysteria uh, that's hosted by uh, a writer and comedian named Aaron Ryan. And, you know, the show, no men are allowed on that show. You know, the producers are women. The soundtrack was done by women. Uh, you know, so like we, we try to develop uh, a whole suite of shows on a network that gives uh, something for everybody that wants it. But the overriding goal of everything we're trying to do is to encourage people to care about politics, to get involved personally and to win back the White House uh, in, in 2020. So, look, I mean, you know, if people don't like the tone of the show, that's totally fair. And, and that's their uh, th that's totally up to them. But like we're trying to use that platform to do things like raise a million dollars for Stacey Abrams to fight voter suppression efforts. So it's all in service of a bigger goal here. Mm hmm. And what do you still want to do? One last thing, what, what do you still want to do with the company? What's what do you have? What are you guys working on now that you will be rolling out uh, in 2020? That's that, that takes it to a, another step, a different direction. We're developing a whole bunch of uh, shorter, limited series. So th that's something we're really excited about. The show with Abdul uh, and, and several others like it. Um, you know, I think some of our biggest initiatives in in 2020 are going to be around the election itself. So, you know, we've launched uh, funds to raise money to help Democrats win back the Senate. We launched a fund to help raise money for Virginia uh, state legislative candidates, because if we can win this election's coming up this November. So if we can win four seats in Virginia this November, we can flip the legislature in Virginia. And that would be absolutely critical timing right before redistricting, redistricting occurs uh, and they redraw the maps for the congressional seats in that state. So that's incredibly important. We're trying to uh, raise money for uh, an effort to train like a thousand organizers so that 
uh, there is a field team ready for whoever the nominee is uh, to be hired on day one that are trained and tested and ready and prepared. Because when you're the nominee and you come through a primary, you have to go from like 300 staffers to 3,000 staffers in the blink of an eye. And if we have this like 1,000 person field army in key swing states that are diverse and young and hungry and excited to work and ready to do it, uh, that's an enormous benefit. So we're trying to use the the platform of Pots of America to do a bunch of political work. It's a weird thing for a media company to do, but it's, it's the reason we started it. All right. The, uh, the Pods of America crew will be at the San, uh, City National Civic in San Jose, Thursday, September 26th. Tickets are available at crooked.com slash events. Tommy, thanks for coming on. Good to talk to you again. Thanks, man. For, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, please say hello to everyone in the Bay. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Tommy for coming on the podcast. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether your podcast is saving America or killing it, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.